thing that makes the average citizen puke and look at this system and say, yeah, you know, what's going on? I don't know anything about this man except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about. Him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come. Invention. Come. You want me to do it? Come. Uh, you do it, yeah. Alright. In five, four, three, two. The evil has gone. Welcome back to Grubstakers, everyone. I'm Steve Jeffries, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts... Andy Palmer. Sean P. McCarthy. Yogi Polywell. Today we're covering uh, Joe Lewis. Not the boxer, but the businessman. Uh, he's one of the lesser-known sort of reclusive billionaires, uh, British billionaires. You might never hear about in the press, but that's kind of a shame that you don't, because he's actually incredibly dangerous. And um, quite profligate in his spending. And he's certainly not benign or harmless, which a lot of like the, these glowing um, interviews online that we could find make, make him out to be. He should be notorious and, and sort of a household name. And perhaps he is in his native Britain. I mean, uh, the UK listeners can fill us in on that point. I'm sure they generally have a better understanding of him than the rest of our, our listeners. Well, I would just say, having looked at a couple, you know, British tabloid articles about him, the main complaint seems to be like, oh, I wish that cunt would spend more money on this fucking Spurs. <laughs> the, uh, he's recently pissed off, and the reason we're covering him is that he recently pissed off uh, the fans, the Tottenham Hotspurs, uh, by trying, b- despite being worth $4.3 billion dollars, he tried to furlough uh, a bunch of the employees and we'll get back to that in a bit. But um, yeah, apparently people in Britain are fairly well aware of his wealth and are fairly pissed off at how he's running his football club. We'll we'll get to all this in a minute, but I, I just wanted to say up top, you know, I looked at the sun and a couple other British tabloids and yeah, that's the main complaint is that he's like not funding the spurs enough. But, uh, Meanwhile, if you do a little more digging, you find out this guy is building fucking Shadow Moses in Argentina. <laughs> he has his own little private uh, military base in Argentina and is uh, stealing land and resources and water from the locals. <laughs> so uh, he's a pretty scary bad guy. Yeah, I would say so. And like in addition to like, you know, the coronavirus thing and uh, his real estate uh, projects, like basically just like enclosing natural resources um, in Argentina, they'll get into um, he his private equity fund, Tavistock Group. Um, it owns tons of real estate all over the world, and it's been responsible for some pretty reckless um, speculation, particularly in currency markets. Um, along with George Soros, uh, he made a tremendous amount of money. Like some say, just as much as Soros, so a billion dollars off of uh, essentially betting against the British pound and sit, betting that they would crash out of the uh, the precursor to the euro, the European exchange rate mechanism, which uh, we'll explain. Right. The United States has George Soros. The UK has this man, Joe Lewis, similar to how the 
English viewers know Ricky Gervais to be the office, but in the U.S. we have Steve Carell as our office. Similar, <laughs> but not the same. They occupy similar positions in the public imagination as far as like private equity billionaires go. The one managed to, like, they both made a billion dollars off the currency exchange, but only one of them managed to blow a billion uh, <laughs> in Bear Stearns, uh, just sucking up Bear Stearns' equity uh, right up to the very end. True. But also, only one of them seems to be friends with Tiger Woods, Shaquille O'Neal, and at this, belong to the same country club as Ken Griffey Jr., the kid! <laughs> so... Joe Lewis is worth about $4.8 billion, according to Forbes, as of April of this year. And like we were, he's nicknamed the Boxer simply for sharing the name with the American <laughs> Boxer Joe Lewis, which just seems like an insult because he's like this like short guy who's like been fat his whole life, <laughs> basically, rather than, rather than an athlete, so... I will say, if you're a billionaire who lives in uh, Panama, uh, it's very convenient to have that name because every time you try to uh, research the uh, tax troubles that this billionaire was into, you get uh, the tax troubles of the boxer and how he was hounded by the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. There's um, Joe Lewis is a land of contrasts because he's actually two professional fighters. One with a slightly different spelling of his name and another one with the exact same spelling of his name, who was, a, um, I guess, a, a famous karate guy in 70s movies, um, who, uh, according to the Iron Cheek, was no jabroni. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he apparently fought, well, not the, the martial art Joe Lewis, fought uh, Chuck Norris at one point. When I was attempting to find videos about the actual the actual Joe Lewis that we're covering today, I found ones about the martial martial arts guy instead. <laughs> One of the sources I used, uh, celebfamily.com, and trying to find Joe Lewis, the billionaire's family. It is just a basic bio on the billionaire, but every photo is of the African-American boxer. And it's very funny to see like a photo of a shirtless black guy and then underneath it saying he was born in a Jewish family. <laughs> in 1937. <laughs> right, right. It is more appropriate that he's adopted golf as his favorite sport, though, because if you look at a picture of this guy, it's his head is a fucking golf ball. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's pretty few pictures of Divots him, Divots and everything. Yeah. But yeah, what you find is that it's not pretty. No. It's very bowling ball-esque. The holes in his face being the holes you put your fingers in. Oh, yeah, I see it now. <laughs> it's it's His early life is a bit murky, and he clearly... There's clearly a lot of spin on it, and everything I found uh, from The Guardian to the International Business Times, um, they all give it kind of a, have him a rags-to-riches uh, backstory. Uh, he was born uh, on February 5th, 1937 in London's East End, which is a um, well-known working class neighborhood. Uh, I guess there's a there's a sitcom East Enders uh, that I've never seen. I'll just I'll just throw in. Interestingly, he grew up uh, pretty much where Amy Winehouse lived for a while. Oh, yeah. In Bow, London. Hmm. No, no, no. <laughs> 
more on that in a minute. Yeah. So his in his story, he he was uh, the way he tells it. He he was born above a pub. And he kind of makes it sound like he just sort of popped out while his mother was stopping in there for a pint. Uh, when the reality <laughs> is that it was a pub that his dad owned. Um, right. He like he keeps coming back to how uh, he dropped out of school at the age of 15 uh, to work at his father's catering company, Tavistock Banqueting. And he only made six pounds per week. And he, he'll tell uh, it's it's kind of his uh, news, newspaper route story about how he moved a bus stop sign uh, from wherever it was to right outside his father's cafe to increase foot traffic. And that was a very successful thing. Um, The thing is, though, like clearly his aside from having the Tavistock banqueting company, his father also owned this pub. And um, so it's not like his family was in poverty the way he frames it. And also, you know, he worked for six pounds a week. That's surely wasn't a lot of money in the fifties, but at the same time, like he was working in his dad's pub. So, well, it sounds like he, I mean, he's only 15, so he's not like of, I don't think that's the legal working age in UK. So I think it's yeah. just like an, it's like an, it's an allowance basically. Yeah. But like, at least George Soros had a real job at that age. He was handing out leaflets, telling people to report to the nearest train station. <laughs> <laughs> You know, his his dad didn't own that company. The German government did. <laughs> yeah, I realized, like, he, the, this guy, Joe Lewis, probably lived through the Blitz, uh, but he was pretty young when it happened. Um, From articles that I were, was reading, it said that uh, when he was 15, he was selling, like, tourists, American tourist tchotchkes, as well as working at that bar. So, I mean, really, he lives above the bar he goes down to work in it because his dad owns it the fact that he leaves school at 15 doesn't really make any sense yeah he he was just i mean i've got a friend who did this too um but unlike this guy my friend didn't become a huge asshole uh (laughs) that's right thank you andy It, I mean, it's it's a pretty common thing. Like when you've got the the job lined up for you, it's it's a pretty natural progression. Uh, he he then took over the family business, and I think probably the selling um, tchotchkes thing influenced him in, in a way because he he then went on to start a bunch of tourist oriented pub chains. One of them called Beef Eater, and then another <laughs> one called Cockney Pride Tavern, mm-hmm. and he also. Uh, either bought or started uh, this club Hanover grand club in London's West end. And then in 1979, he sold them all for $30 million. Uh, So yeah, by the time he was in his, what was that? By the time he was in his forties, he um, had a small fortune. Um, But, and also like a little piece of trivia that you see pop up everywhere is that he was the first boss for the guy who started planet Hollywood in the hard rock cafe um and so you kind of get the impression that maybe that was also kind of the the types of establishments that he ran was like you know cockney pride i don't think anyone who's actually cockney would go to the cockney pride <laughs> tavern chain yeah it's like okay sassanek <laughs> yeah could i could i just say uh, one thing about the cockney thing um so I, I read this profile on him in The Sun, which, for those not familiar, is kind of a, a rabidly anti-immigrant um, British tabloid paper. Oh, right up and your alley. 
they, they can they can be quite vicious in the sun and you would think like this guy who's like a tax exile who's you know building his own military operation in Argentina would would get a uh, a vicious treatment but no they 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 really did this kid gloves profile of him and then I lo- I went to the user comments uh because they told the story of him you know like we just said of him growing up uh upstairs in a pub and and him being a cockney and uh, you 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 remember you're reading the Sun when you get to the user comments because one of them was uh, if he grew up there now he would be his childhood would be interrupted by the call to prayer every morning. <laughs> <laughs> and oh then, wow! But <clears throat> but then check out this other comment because it starts out good. Like I thought I was reading you know pushback on this this right, bluff piece right. that I just read. Uh, the comment starts out, I'm quoting from it, another terrible article. When did he acquire the Spurs? We aren't told. How much did he pay? We aren't told. All we get is this press release. <laughs> I'm assuming he's Jewish. <laughs> if so, he isn't English. And if he isn't English, he isn't Cockney, no matter where he was born. <laughs> no matter where he was born. And that, that comment has two upvotes and four downvotes. Solid. <laughs> yes, but uh, the Sun can't get away with selling this guy as Cockney to their discerning readership. <laughs> no, he's like his dad owns at least three establishments, right? Yeah, that we know of. Uh, it well two. Yeah, it, it looks like he had uh, two that we were able to trace down. I mean, regardless, <laughs> when he sells those businesses, his dad must have. I mean, hopefully gotten a piece of it. And so out of that 30 million, either some of it went to his father or there was more that's undisclosed and 30 million is what went to Joe. Right. So he, um, he, in 1979, he's able to, after expanding the business into other more sort of themed restaurants and pubs throughout London, he's able to sell the business venture for 30 million pounds, roughly in you know, 1979 pounds. By the way, in answer to that racist guy on the Sun's question, he uh, he bought the Hotspurs in uh, February of 2001 uh, from Lord Sugar, <laughs> a <laughs> yeah, guy who gained notoriety uh, in the last few years by tweeting out a picture, a photo. Well, I don't know if it's photoshopped, but a picture of Jeremy Corbyn in a car with Adolf Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> Like Lord Sugar, that's because his he had a sugar plantation, right? Yeah, I assume. Lord, like when you're when you're at that level, you're just named after the thing that you exploit people over. <laughs> Did you know what I learned just uh, reading the first few pages of the book The Anarchy about the East India Company? The English word for loot actually comes from Hindi. Because that is the um, the Hindi word for what the East India Company did to India. They looted all the treasure and natural resources. So it actually came into the English language from the East India Company looting India. Wow. Thanks, guys. Neat. <laughs> Apparently, Lord Sugar also grew up in the East End. And has a similar back backstory to this Joe Lewis guy. So in 1979, he sells most of his debt, what what he built from his dad's business venture for 30 million pounds. And but slightly before that, though, in 1975, he founds the holding company Tavistock Group, and that assumes much of the ownership of what he would later sell. Um, he ends up using 
the money from that venture to um, diversify his company, shall we say, and get into some interesting currency speculation. I did want to just say, I saw, I saw one article that said that when he was running those pub chains in the 60s, he hosted like Frank Sinatra and Tom Jones and other kind of popular acts at the time. Really? So, yeah. So he, he had a pretty popular thing going that he inherited from his dad. Oh, yeah. I mean, we should say he, uh, I mean, he wasn't, it wasn't only um, sort of kitschy touristy stuff. There were also some nightclubs and whatnot. In some of those themed restaurants, yeah, I read somewhere that they had like uh, sword swallowers and uh, people in uh, uh, the full metal, the fuck the thing called, the armor. Chainmail? Yeah, uh, not chainmail. Suit, suit of armor? Suit of armor, that's what it's called, yeah. They had, <laughs> they had. Uh, I mean, like, you know. The motherfuckers started, you know, uh, what's that American restaurant where they fucking joust? Well, it's it's supposed to be like uh, Medieval Knights or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's that place called? Uh, medieval Times? The castle place. Medieval Times? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's not like a great like ex- food, but it's a good experience. So you have this guy profiting from people being like, we could go to this place where they got fucking sword swallers and then we can eat shitty pasta. That's essentially what Joe Lewis sells for 30 million quid. That that made me think of like another idea for a themed restaurant where you could have a Vietnam, when you said full metal, like you could have a Vietnam War themed uh, restaurant where in the corner you just have a Gomer pile who loads a gun and then shoots a blank into his head every few minutes. Uh, all the soap in the bathroom is in pillowcases. <laughs> so at the at the Vietnam themed restaurant, you can uh, play Russian roulette for a one in six chance your meal is free. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, uh, nobody in the restaurant is allowed to raise their arms for the waiter. They're all they all have their arms broken. <laughs> <laughs> If you're at the Vietnamese restaurant, uh, Jane Fonda will visit your table, and whether or not you're liking it, she'll say you're having a great time and being treated very well. <laughs> <laughs> when the server comes by and gives you your bill, he's like, this is your check. There are many like it, but this one is yours. <laughs> <laughs> the check comes with a snail on a razor blade. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, lastly, on his time uh, in the restaurant industry, his first wife, Esther, was once a waitress in his parents' greasy spoon, according to thisismoney.co.uk. And he's got a theme with the women that he marries being uh, uh, proximity-based women in his life. Uh, His first wife, who he divorced, worked in his parents' restaurant, and his second wife would be his secretary. And I don't know about you guys, but fuck people who can't find pussy outside of their work relationships. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Well, it's it's not just proximity. It's like people he has power over, his subordinates. Yeah, your subordinates. That's not, it's just never okay. Right, It is right. very funny, though, that, Yogi, that you phrased it as, like, proximity, considering that you met your wife on Twitter. I mean, she was very far away, and I found her <laughs> through a service that allowed me to wow her with 140 characters, mind you. It was pre Three two forty characters. The game, <laughs> the game had no fat. <laughs> Damn, Yogi, your your wife and I must be reading different tweets on your feed. Because <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure what it was. So by the late 1970s, Mr. Lewis, um, Joe Lewis had a substantial fortune, and from the sale of the restaurant assets. And they're basically all tied up in uh, his investment vehicle called Hanover Grand PLC, 
which was a British holding company, um, he got some advice from some of his investor friends that he should become what's known as a tax exile and move to the Bahamas and then only come back to the UK up to a maximum time limit so that he doesn't switch back to being a UK citizen and have to pay taxes at the higher rate for UK. Man, billionaires hate taxes. You guys ever notice this? <laughs> There's never a billionaire who's like, you know what I love? Fucking taxes. That's kind of important to like set the scene of his later currency trading because just you have to picture him on this like he's in he's in this tax haven sort of this enclave of like uh royal some like second rate sort of royalty from Europe mm-hmm. and rich English um bankers and traders. Right. And like their their sort of uh uh entourages. So there's just like a little tip of the Bahamas that is just all that. And right. so setting the scene, he is in that community and he has a Wait. A pretty a pretty big house with like a what were you gonna say, Andy? Oh, it's also uh, interesting to keep in mind that he is in the Bahamas in order to dodge taxes. Considering uh, one of the stunts he pulled just recently with the uh, Tottenham Hotspurs to try to write off uh, a bunch of his employees using uh, COVID nineteen emergency relief measures, <laughs> right? <laughs> Well, it's, you know, and I, I did just want to say something on this. So, yeah, like uh, Steve just said there, he's been, since 1979, he's officially been a resident of the Bahamas, though he spends apparently several months a year just on his yacht in the middle of the ocean. Um, so, uh, if anybody wants to take some direct action. Uh, but uh, what, what I wanted to say with regards to that was just like, the law in the UK has changed a bit, but officially the way it is now, if anyone who spends more than 183 days in the United Kingdom is considered a resident for tax purposes. Mm-hmm. So he'll come to the United Kingdom and he'll apparently park his yacht in London and the government's totally fine with this. And that's really because when we talk about the prosperity of London, so much of it is based around this offshore finance system that he exploits. Where, you know, we've talked about the looting of Russia and the Ukraine and uh, other countries, um, particularly those two in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union. Like, so much of their assets were just transferred offshore and run through London banks. So, Mm -hmm. so much of this prosperity comes from this same system that he abuses and exploits. So, of course, the government doesn't give a shit if he uh, uh, lives in the Bahamas and is on his yacht half the year. They're they're happy to welcome him him in even though he is a tax exile and he is just doing this to avoid paying his uh, fair share of taxes yeah i mean it's so obvious that like the like london city absolutely does not give a shit in fact they love that he's doing that because it means more fees and business for them to manage uh how they sort of containerize um someone's one's tax registry to avoid all of it mostly but back to the bahamas so he has he has like a fairly large mansion there and uh, reportedly, like, there's a New York Times, a long piece on him from 1998. Um, incidentally, he almost never gives interviews. Mm-hmm. But um, this piece says that he essentially has, like, a large room with tons of screens, sort of like the architect from The Matrix. But it's, like, all <laughs> it's all foreign exchange stuff and, like, uh, market data. Right. And 
so I just picture him in there, like um, chatting with Soros or something. I've been in 1991 about this plot to um, short the British pound. The way that his wealth really exploded was so like the re- selling the restaurants gets him into like the lower levels of the British elite, and that's great. But he the way his wealth really explodes is by getting into currency speculation, and currency speculation is an area where it has like notoriously small margins and so you either have to use a whole lot of capital or you have to use a whole lot of leverage mm-hmm. in his case in his case he used both and he was able to get in on what's called black wednesday why is going to be black thank you <laughs> to well, you see, the thing is, Yogi, about the uh, uh, Wednesday is historically, <laughs> uh... Black Wednesday was an event when basically what happened is Britain was part of what's called what was called the European Exchange Rate Mechanism, and this was a system prior to the euro that was trying to make it so the member states that would eventually join the euro later in uh, in in the 90s and 2000s, um, their, their exchange rates between each other would have to stay within this narrow band that was uh, it was um, set up by the, um, the European Economic Community. Um, it's like Initiative for Economic Integration. To be, it can never stray too far from the other countries in terms of this like experimental, like proto-euro, basically. So, like, they measured where countries were in terms of the synthetic currency so that later on when they adjust to an actual euro, it would be smoother. Right. So, Soros knew that Britain was in a pretty severe recession from 1989 uh, to, like, it ended up going all the way through 1993. And he knew that the Bank of England wouldn't be able to raise interest rates even if they wanted to, if they faced some sort of, even in the face of some sort of currency pressure, like if, say, someone were selling British pounds, like in a fire sale. So he knew that he could, if he had enough leverage and he had enough other people join in, he could get the British pound to devalue so much that it would fall outside of its narrowly prescribed um exchange rate mechanism uh like corridor of where where the exchange rate could be and then it would have to leave which would devalue even further so what he did is he went around to every single bank and uh investment firm that he could and he borrowed up to he and soros actually teamed up with his quantum fund and they collectively borrowed at one point up to 10 billion British pounds, and then sold them, and that created such a strain for the Bank of England because it needed to, it needed to keep its exchange rate up in order to stay inside of the mechanism, so that it was on track to you know meet its obligations with the with the eurozone. But it couldn't. From the Guardian, it said that it cost the Treasury an estimated three point four billion pounds. So his like his gambit was basically the exchange rate is high now, so I'm gonna borrow and then sell these, and then it'll cause so much pressure later that I can able I'll be able to bar to 
buy them back at a lower price and then repay my creditors and pocket the profit. So he's shorting the British pound. And it creates so much pressure that um, John Major, the conservative Tory leader after Thatcher, like he was a huge fan of the exchange rate mechanism and he had kind of staked his political career on it, but it eventually became a negative for him. And it kind of influenced, there's like a political side to this where he eventually had no choice but to take them off Hmm. the exchange rate mechanism, which triggered a huge devaluation in the currency. And that's where basically the source of Joe Joe Lewis and George Soros's windfall came from. Right. I think that what's most frustrating is that Black Wednesday in 92 was obviously November 18th when the Chicago Bulls beat the Portland Trailblazers. (laughs) (laughs) I was also just going to say, we talked about uh, this on our George Soros episode as well, but it is worth mentioning uh, with Soros, um, by this time he was, you know, having meetings and lunches with finance ministers from all over the world on basically a daily basis. So, you know, I mean, they made a smart bet, but it was also partly they just had the connections with governments to know what was going on and uh, profit off of that. So uh, this Joe Lewis guy was was clearly lucky or uh, had the connections to know Soros, who in turn had other connections uh, to various yeah. governments throughout Europe. Like um, the NY, there's a there's another New York Times article I found that co- was covering like this drama, and it said in 1992, Mr. Soros would gain fame as the man who quote broke the Bank of England when he reportedly earned a billion betting against a pound. One overanimated French official, angered by speculation against the franc around the same time, called for currency traders to be beheaded. <laughs> and so I'm like. What like why would a civil servant break character and be that angry about this? So this must be more than just some abstract like monetary thing, right? Well it's also tradition. It's 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 just kind of a reflexive response for the French. <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of a sidebar, but who do you guys think is more evil? Uh who who used their British pound money more evilly? Joe Lewis who sets up this private military base in Argentina and uh, steals water resources from the locals, or George Soros, who uses his money to uh, stage several false flag school shootings in an attempt to steal guns from the American people. Um, so I'm like, I'm professionally obligated to defend Soros because he founded the DSA and he really helped, like those source checks really helped me when I first joined GSA. I don't know about right. you guys. They keep the podcast afloat. Yeah. There were some there were some lean years in Grub Stakers, so we never go too hard on, on George Soros. Yeah, I mean those checks got me through some bad some bad moments financially. So I guess I'll say provisionally Joe Lewis is worse, but Yeah, I mean in our in our um weekly teleconferences with Soros, he says like you know, he gets a kick out of Every time we talk about the uh, false flag school shootings things, because, you know, obviously I can't go into why, uh, but it's um, it, it, it does cover for the real shit he's doing. We're, we're paid for disinformation. Organizing Q. <laughs> are, we allowed to, are we allowed to say that George Soros is behind Q? Is that um, did he did he give us the green light on that? I think all of this is going to make Twitter call us all CIA psyops that much more, especially Sean. Guys, I just checked our Patreon and it's empty. What happened? <laughs> I don't need to I don't need to see Sean to know he's hard. 
I think the average person, if they just heard about Black Wednesday and all that that um, monetary nonsense, would their eyes would kind of glaze over and be like, okay, what does this matter for like workers and stuff? Um, I would say that well, one thing, one thing the Bank of England had to do because of this this like fire sale that these guys initiated initiated was since they were since they were started since they were part of like a fixed exchange rate regime. Um, they had to use their other foreign exchange reserves to go out and buy enough British pounds in order to stave off, you know, to keep them within the range. So that means that they can't import valuable things like, like medicine or agricultural goods. Like it makes it harder for them to do that because they're, they need to, you know, it's, it's several, it's just like a several islands that have a lot of people, but not that much arable land. And they need they have they have to import quite a lot. So if you're if you're just the Bank of England has to go out and buy back British pounds in order to stave this thing off, they have a harder time importing those goods. And in fact this was like a major concern that the the Chancellor at the time brought up with um the Tory the Tory government. They're like, listen, you guys gotta either leave this mechanism or find some cheaper means of acquiring the forex so that we can keep um, buying the goods that we need. Hmm. So like there were, it seems kind of arbitrary and like this stupid like okay this rich guy was screwing screwing over a government in this abstract way, but actually there are like real consequences. So okay, I'm um, uh, stupid. So as I understand it, then he was. They they were undermining the British um, ability to import things because he was essentially offshoring a bunch of British currency in his process of short selling. Um, due to his so like he borrowed a vast number of British pounds and just sold them on the market, and it caused the price the price of the British pound and the other things to plummet. And the Bank of England has the they're tasked with the job of staying within the band right so they in order to get the british pounds back and then offer them at a better price for them they need to sell they need to go and buy those british pounds with other foreign currencies that they have mm. so like dollars uh german uh german marks lira all of these things and it like you're as a central bank, one of your duties is basically to preserve those foreign exchange reserves for an emergency when if you need to import something really badly. So like you know, like emergency goods like like food, medicine, that type of thing. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, and and so why was the uh French official so pissed off about it? I suspect it was mainly due to this reason because it's like you're taking away this this country's ability to import things that it cannot make enough of within its own territory so the french official was mad on behalf of oh no there was another run on the frank that was unrelated but this was a this was due to that i'm sure there were Uh, british there are british civil servants who are just as pissed but anyway that's 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 sort of the story with uh black wednesday so Lewis, like some say, Lewis made just as much as Soros, which was ended up being about a billion dollars. I was just gonna say, um, slightly 
contrarian take. I, I don't think what they did was good, but it ended up keeping the United Kingdom off of the euro, which is one of the stupidest and most corrupt and downright evil economics projects that has been carried out in the uh, 20th and 21st centuries. And you look at all the people yeah. condemned to poverty in Greece because that country ended up on the euro. It's it's probably for the best the United Kingdom abandoned the ERM. Yeah, I mean, some, uh, some in Britain call it White Wednesday, you know, because <laughs> white is good and black is bad. <laughs> Why has it got to be white? <laughs> uh, Stephen just explained that. The, the, it's literally called, sometimes it's just called White Slash Black Wednesday mm-hmm. because some people think it was bad because you left, you got off the track of eventually joining the Euro, and then other people think it's good because you got off the track of joining the Euro. I like that the Brits have to wedge their racism even into currency manipulation. <laughs> yeah, so like some, that, I mean, Britain was in a pretty bad recession still, they're recovering. And they couldn't raise interest rate. Well, now that they're out of the exchange rate mechanism, they're free to um, lower interest rates and reduce strain on debtors, you know, and lay the groundwork for recovery, at least on the monetary side. So, like, they couldn't do that before. So some people say, actually, this was good. So this was this wasn't the only time that he engaged in large scale currency speculation. Um it, uh, I think it was 1996 that he, I want to say that he took a run at the Mexican peso. Yeah, so um, just from Whitney Webb and Mint Press News, between 1995 and 1996, he kind of repeated the play that he made with the British pound on the Mexican peso. And um, really the effects for Mexico were uh, far more devastating than it was for the United Kingdom because um, uh, the uh, the subsequent peso crisis in Mexico uh, meant that they had to get an international monetary fund bailout, which was shepherded through by U.S. Uh, President Bill Clinton. And uh, as a result, it led to, just quoting from Whitney Webb, a massive jump in poverty, unemployment, and inequality in Mexico, and, uh, of course, left the government at the mercy of the IMF. And uh, y- you just look at all the things that have happened in Mexico since NAFTA, it's just been a, a long series of disasters and uh, cartel murder and everything else, and that uh, were it took twenty years of that before they would finally elect a, a social democrat, uh, AMLO, the current president. Right. I mean, so like these, like individual pecuniary actions of these currency speculators has can have just disastrous results for workers in a country. Right, and also from the Whitney Webb piece, uh, she makes the argument that. Uh, this run on the peso in 95 and 96 actually spread an economic recession throughout most of the Americas and uh, severely impacted the economy of Argentina. Um, And so in 96, as all this um, uh, economic chaos hit Argentina, this is when Joe Lewis goes in and starts buying up land. Uh, And, you know, we we, uh, mentioned that earlier. We'll talk about it a little more in a second. But these things all have a ripple effect where you fuck up the economy in one place, then suddenly it opens up good opportunities to to buy at a steep discount somewhere else. Right. So in, I think it was 1992, he met with uh, another billionaire we've covered, Kerry Packer, in Argentina for like a trip to visit him there. And that was apparently like it inspired him to later in 1996 start buying up some real estate right. just on his own, not not with Tavistock, but on his own. Right. And 
So the land he's bought up in Argentina, I think, is the most scary and fascinating uh, part of this guy, Joe Lewis. And I really recommend these uh, Whitney Webb articles in, uh, in Mint Press News. Uh, she talks a lot about kind of the uh, strange circumstances surrounding his land. But, you know, I, I said at the beginning that he's trying to create Shadow Moses in Argentina. And it seems like him and a, a couple other billionaires have bought up a bunch of land in Argentina, basically bought off the government, and they're uh, trying to set up their own little community with, you know, its own water resources, its own oil, everything else, uh, its own airport. Um, and there's also uh, rumors uh, that Whitney Webb reports on of he set up his own airport in this community and uh, IDF soldiers actually fly in there on a regular basis for training exercises. He has his own private security all over this thing. So it's like, and I guess something he even talked about with Kerry Packer was his desire to set up his own nation. So this is like a billionaire who lives on a, a yacht in the middle of the ocean most of the year, but he wants to have his own country within a country that potentially even uh, secedes from a country. Or if not, he just keeps it de facto where the Argentine government is totally bought off, so they'll just let him have a country within a country. This yacht that Sean's referring to, mind you, uh, real quick, it costs $250 million. It, it can have 16 people with eight cabins. Its name's Aviva, and it even has its own paddle tennis court on the yacht. And he takes it everywhere around the world from... Uh, Argentina to Vietnam and then uses it in the Bahamas and goes to London. I mean, just think about that for a second, though. He takes a boat from the Bahamas to Vietnam in the UK. Like, what type of crazy billionaire is this? In uh, 2013, apparently he doesn't meet uh, the players at, in Tottenham Hotspurs that much, but in 2013, he treated them to taking him or taking them on his yacht. And uh, the best quote from one of these articles was one of the team members described him as, quote, a normal guy. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot, a lot of these quotes. Great energy. Kind of, yeah. Just like like you. He just felt obligated to say about his boss. No, he's a normal guy. Right. Right. A lot like uh, so many of these profiles, they'll have like kind of character assessments from other people where they'll say like different versions of the same thing where it's like, yeah, he's fine. Yeah. It's like someone talking about their abusive partner. Like, no, he's tolerable and okay. Like, it's like, mm, yeah. it sounds like that person is fucking you over constantly. Yeah. It's like maybe he was interviewed on the yacht and there was like a really buff <laughs> security guard standing there and he was right next to a railing. Um, there, there's actually a one quote about him I ran across was from a his his own daughter, uh, which was he doesn't like to talk to people. It aggravates him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and we should also just mention with the yacht. I, I think we forgot to mention it earlier. According to various reports, this guy owns more than one billion U.S. dollars worth of art. Mm -hmm. Like uh, he owns a lot of Picassos, a lot of other uh, very rare and valuable paintings, and apparently he keeps the majority of them on his fucking yacht that is just <laughs> floating around the ocean. You know, three or four months out of the year, so. Just takes just takes one guy with a submarine and a homemade torpedo to put a billion dollars worth of artwork on the floor of the Atlantic Ocean. Which good friends, because how many more Picassos? How many Picassos do you need? You've got like 
three good ones and then a bunch of ones that are just fancy money laundering tools basically but he's also got some miro you know um let's see there i mean there are other some other masters in there that we all care about a bunch of wall street bulls apparently yeah sean he doesn't have the wall street <laughs> bulls on the yachts though right i don't think so so uh we were talking before we started recording the uh the wall street bull uh was installed in 1989 uh, apparently, the artist didn't get permission from uh, from anybody in the government. He just set it up on Wall Street in 1989. Uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you might be familiar with uh, Andy acquainting his tongue <laughs> with the work. But uh, the uh, but but so there are multiple copies of it, of which Joe Lewis owns multiple copies. I don't know how many copies he has, but the original is still on Wall Street. Fucking hoarding dog. You said they the the bowl was just put there by an artist. They didn't give any, like, permission. Right. Initially. Yes. Which, slightly cooler, now that I know that. Apparently they they did the same thing with the fearless girl. Yes, but that was by a fucking bank. A criminal bank that was later to settle uh, numerous sexual harassment and discrimination lawsuits. I'm not sure if the guy behind the Wall Street Bull was the most... I mean, it's it's a monument to... uh, wall street success so i'm not i'm not sure if he he was that pure of spirit as well look as long as as long as the bull kills the little girl that's all i care about we know (laughs) (laughs) but so and we could talk about also he has some links to you know stolen nazi art but uh i'll finish out the argentina story first because this is very fascinating to me um it's the patagonia region of argentina near the near the border with chile um, and it's specifically, he originally bought the Escondido Lake. And uh, this is in 1996. He buys, basically, this is a public lake, which uh, the locals in the area, uh, the town in El Balson, they rely on this lake for water. And he bought all the property around this lake and enclosed the lake and cut off all public access to the lake uh, in 1996. And... Um, and it's not only that, basically, according to Whitney Webb, uh, in 1996, Lewis met this guy, Nicholas von Dittmer, who uh, apparently not only helped him purchase these lands in Argentina, he helped several other uh, foreign oligarchs make land purchases in Ar- Argentina. Uh, van Dittmer, uh, I'm quoting from Whitney Webb here, Van Dittmer, after learning of what Lewis hoped to acquire, spoke to him of the property of the Montero family, which encircled a pristine mountain lake known as uh, Hidden Lake. Uh, Lego Escondido. Uh, most of the members of the Montero family agreed to sell their collective property of around 14,000 hectares to Lewis for about 7 million U.S. dollars. However, one of the Montero brothers had refused, and he, along with his wife and their employee, were all found dead under mysterious circumstances. So, we don't really know what happened, but somebody refused to sell uh, his mo- his land to Joe Lewis and him, his wife, and his employee all turned up dead in uh, 96, 97. I'm sure they're fine. I'm sure they're just hanging out, you know, enjoying a different lakefront property that they now own. You know, and, and the Whitney Webb article, it's, it's long, but it goes through all the different court battles because this land sale in the first place was illegal. Apparently it violated Argentine uh, national security laws because it was right on the border with Chile. Um, a court ordered him to open up this public right-of-way. Like I said, uh, he buys all this land around the lake, which the locals rely on, and then shuts it off for public access. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
and then uh, the court in 2009 orders him to open it up to public access, and, and he just ignores it. Uh, apparently, <laughs> what a fucking ass. Yeah. So uh, apparently, a, a, another court affirms the ruling, and then quoting from Whitney Webb in 2011. Uh, he publicly stated that his and his Hidden Lake employees, uh, one of his employees in 2011, stated that they would defend Lewis's private property, quote, by fighting with blood if we have to. He also said he would he would keep locals from accessing the lake, quote, with a Winchester rifle in hand, unquote. Oh. So these are like, he's just ignoring these court rulings that are uh, telling him to open up a public right-of-way. And then he's uh, has his employees going out there saying, we're going to fucking kill the locals if they come anywhere near this. And he appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. And uh, then this case is still ongoing. But it just should be noted, you know, according to Whitney Webb, um, he has so much contacts with the Argentine government. Uh, the former Argentine uh, president, uh, for, uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, she's the current vice president now, has flown on his helicopter you know so he has direct <laughs> relationships with the current vice president and the former president of argentina so it was what would happen is these local governments would rule against him uh, apparently there was like a, a town uh, a town vote against him and then he just appeals directly to the federal government or the state government he owns so much and can spend so much on just straight up bribery yeah it seems like joe lewis of the UK seems to be like a Argentinian Joe Exotic, if you know what I mean. It's so fucked up because, so this private lake, again, um, th these people in this town uh, rely on the water from it, and courts have said that they have the right to go to this lake. Uh, Joe Lewis and his employees say, no, they have to take this much more dangerous path that um, apparently goes over, like, the hills and, like, actually has risk of death and bodily harm instead of the much more simple... Uh, public access right away but so whitney webb covers in 2019 there were what were called the march for sovereignty protests mm -hmm. where a bunch of marchers from the town came together to march to the lake which is again has court affirmed public access they were blocked by um they were blocked by joe lewis's employees and threatened you know his private security goons and then, quoting from the article, two participants in the march, they mounted inflatable kayaks with the intention of placing an Argentine flag in a small island in the middle of the lake, itself technically a public space. Before they made it to the island, two speedboats belonging to Joe Lewis's company circled the kayaks in an effort to capsize them while taunting them, asking, do you know what it's like to die from hypothermia, unquote. Uh, the Joe Lewis's employees capsized both of these boats and what? left them freezing in the water. Uh, after several minutes, several witnesses stated that one of the security guards told the kayakers, well, now do you see what it's like to die of hypothermia, unquote. They were lifted into guard boats. Uh, both had to be hospitalized because they'd spent so much time in the freezing water. So, I mean, this is the kind of thing he's doing. He owns the fucking government. It doesn't matter if you can get a court ruling saying this is public land. He's just going to appeal above your head, and he has private security goons to enforce his, uh, his property rights. He has uh, two children. Disgusting. His son also lives in Argentina, Charles Lewis. Uh, his daughter runs his uh, cancer charity that he started after his own father, Charles, passed away from cancer. But, yeah, it seems like he wants to own Argentina without them knowing it. Right. 
and it is just like, I should clarify, so this lake, the reason he wants this lake is to set up his private state. He's mm -hmm. got, he's in progress to build this this uh, area that's supposed to be four times the size of the city of Buenos Aires, and he wants the lake as a water source for this area. Oh. So, you know, the, this town, El Bolson, uh, that we mentioned, you know, the, the town residents rely on this lake, and just uh, quoting from Whitney Webb, uh, quoting from Whitney Webb, protests against him have attracted as many as 15,000 participants from the town of El Bolson, which is nearly 80% of the town's entire population. So this guy has 80% of this fucking town protesting him because they recognize he's stealing their water. He's going to encircle their lake, drain all their water, and use it to set up his private little state within a state where apparently IDF soldiers fly into the airport and engage in training exercises. So it's all very weird what's going on here. For those wondering, Buenos Aires is 78.5 square miles. So this area that he wants to own is 314 miles worth of land. Square miles, wow. Which, like, you know, saying four times size of Buenos Aires, I just didn't know what, how big Buenos Aires was. But, like, f you know, 300 miles of land that includes a lake is fucking, you know, how many people's lives and air quality and water access is he ruining because he wants to build his own state? Right. And, you know, the article goes through all the legal wranglings I mentioned earlier. Um, uh, the town voted it, uh, the town that he wants to, or that he set up his private airport in, uh, they voted uh, in 2009. 79% of voters voted against this private airport. But he basically appealed to the federal government and did a little loophole thing where he got some other person who had tertiary property rights to set up their own private community in the area, which just happened to include an airport and then sell it to him. So, I mean, he's just been ignoring court order after court order and appealing to higher and higher authorities. And he's uh, clearly so close to the Argentine federal and uh, state governments that uh, really nobody bothers to enforce the law against him. Fucking crazy. Right. Well, someone someone did in 1999. Yeah, supposedly there was a assassination attempt taken on Joe Lewis and his wife. I don't know if assassination is the right term, but as they disembarked from a helicopter, the helicopter would explode, immediately incinerating the pilot, which this article mentioned that was a, a family friend. But uh, they weren't able to find out who uh, caused the explosion. Another article I found said that it, it was a mechanical failure, but I don't know. I mean... Could someone in South America want to have taken out Joe Lewis via helicopter? I think so. It's it's also I, I found a fascinating connection here. Uh, we we mentioned that Joe Lewis is, is friends with Tiger Woods. Uh, <laughs> we also uh, noted in the Chris Klein episode uh, that he married Tiger Woods' uh, ex-wife, or not married, but you know he uh, fucked Tiger Woods' ex-wife, and Chris Klein, of course, went on to die in a helicopter crash. And uh, another interesting tidbit that I found, seeming to detect a pattern, is that uh, Tucker Woods was friends with Kobe Bryant. Oh. Hmm. So. Actually, this guy does mentor Shaquille O'Neal, and there were comments that Kobe Bryant said, we would have had more rings if Shaq got off the bench and practiced his jump shot. And then Kobe Bryant died in the helicopter crash like a few days later. So... Business mentor Joe Lewis may have a hand in helicopter-related deaths, if you know what I mean. I think it's Tiger. I think Tiger Woods, uh, uh, when he's not golfing, 
he's going through helicopter manuals, uh, <laughs> looking for weak spots, uh, little things that you can unplug. I mean, I, uh, I, I can't say for certain that this is the case, but I will say that if you've pissed off Tiger Woods, don't get in a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> That must be like torture if you're Tiger Woods and you're known as like a golf legend, but you can't reveal to the world your true passion as an expert, expert's helicopter saboteur. Like, I'm the Tiger Woods of blowing up billionaire helicopters, and nobody will know that or appreciate it. When he's reading the article in the newspaper that the helicopter explodes, he just silently does a Tiger Woods fist pump. <laughs> this what. That's what his his wife ran out that night. <laughs> right, for. right, right. <laughs> she realized the truth about his obsession with killing yeah. people in helicopters. Yeah, he's not a sex addict. He's just addicted to <laughs> to sabotaging he's like, he's helicopters. Like, why, do you, why do you think? Why does you think I have any of this? Why do you think I started golf? Yeah, he's not. He's not fucking women. He's just traveling the world, learning about different types of helicopters and their weaknesses. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, I, I want to talk about this assassination attempt for a second because, I mean, it makes a lot of sense here when, when you read up on this guy. And again, it's a real disservice to uh, the British readership of the tabloids that they're not informed of any of this shit. You know, like one of the fucking owners of their football clubs is a, a Metal Gear Solid boss battle, basically. <laughs> but, but like this fucking guy. So this town is called uh, Laderas, L-A-D-E-R-A-S. And... We mentioned the town of El Balson, where 80% of it is protesting him because he's stealing their water supply to set up a new state four times the size of Buenos Aires and also to their north. So the entire idea is he's got, you know, this private airport. He's got a thousand luxury homes. He's got a golf course, shopping centers, an artificial lake. Uh, and the entire idea is he's going to not only steal their water, but steal their tourism. So everyone who comes to El Balson will instead go to his little private resort that he's setting up. But um, I, I just wanted to quote one other thing from this Whitney Webb article about the private airport at his new town that he's building. Um, it, it's capable of, I believe, uh, accepting two commercial airplanes at a time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you know, two 747s or whatever have you can land there and uh, be fueled and disembark passengers there at a time. But quoting from the Whitney Webb article, most notably, however, there has never been any presence of Argentine customs or any other form of Argentine government control over what or who flies into or out of that airport, even though the airport is capable of receiving international flights. The point is particularly concerning in light of allegations that Lewis receives thousands of IDF soldiers annually for training on his property. And so, you know, this is just kind of something where it's like, this guy probably did have an assassination attempt against him in 99 because he's got a fucking airport that no Argentine customs officials are looking at. You don't know if he's running guns or mercenaries or drugs out of it. You have no idea what he's doing with his international airport. You know who I think was behind the helicopter, hmm. actually? I've changed it from Tiger Woods. It was the uh, Symbionese Liberation Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> this was uh, Joe Lewis after exiting the helicopter. <laughs> he's just trying he just wants to build a shagahod yeah right right 
but we'll see what happens with the Argentina property. You know, again, these protests against it are ongoing. Um, uh, Whitney Webb is uh, a great reporter who's, who's looked at this stuff, so please check out her work if you're interested. But I, I did want to quote one last thing. According to the research of former French intelligence officer uh, turned journalist Therese Misson, uh, Lewis has been inviting thousands of IDF, Israeli Defense Force soldiers, to his territory annually. In late 2017, he alleged, since the Falklands War, the Israeli army has been organizing, quote, holiday camps in Patagonia for its soldiers. Between 8,000 and 10,000 of them now come every year to spend two weeks on Joe Lewis's land. So, I mean, you know, that's just a very disturbing thing, and, uh, and we don't know why, but it really does seem like this guy is setting up fucking Shadow Moses within Argentina, and uh, we'll see if the protests do anything, and we'll see if uh, public scrutiny perhaps motivates the government to do something about this guy setting up a state within a state. But um, we should mention with the time we have left, uh, I guess he lost big on Bear Stearns. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so uh, it, obviously he's not very well known about uh, everything that he's doing in Argentina, but one thing he is pretty well known for, at least was uh, well known for in uh, 2008, was uh, listening very, in- one, one of his currency trading screens uh, was apparently playing this clip of Jim Cramer. Okay, Peter writes, should I be worried about Bear Stearns in terms of liquidity and get my money out of there? No, no, no. Bear Stearns is fine. Do not take your money out. This is really, look, if there's one takeaway other than a plus 400 somebody, Bear Stearns is not in trouble. I mean, if anything, they're more likely to be taken over. I didn't realize we were still airing that. Kramer's been <laughs> dead for six months. <laughs> so, uh, Joe Lewis had probably one of the biggest curb your enthusiasm um adventures with bear stearns he uh he managed to lose one billion dollars in one day uh when they got sold over to jp morgan and how he it, it wasn't just like something where he passively had his money sitting in bear stearns and then they went under he had uh going into the crisis about a seven percent stake and Bear Stearns that he had acquired over the years. And then uh, as the uh, mortgage crisis started to roll into gear, um, uh, two of the hedge funds in Bear Stearns imploded and the share tri- price dropped from a high of about 150 to 110. And uh, we've kind of teased at it that Joe Lewis has uh, a kind of a gambler's mindset. And it's, so I think he, he had the, um, uh the the impulse to buy the dip mm-hmm. and he just started buying as many shares as he could he increased his stake to 10 percent by hundreds of thousands of bear stern shares uh owning up to uh 11 million shares and then it collapsed completely uh to the point where they had to make a deal with jp morgan uh, to sell off their shares at about two dollars per share that later increased to uh 10 10- <laughs> that later increased to uh, $10 per share um, which was um, that was after the federal government stepped in uh, in order to make it look like uh, less of just kind of a, a scam and a, a payout to J.P. Morgan who was also being bailed out um, but he, he still had $2 billion when he he had three billion initially. He still had two billion to fall back on after he blew that one billion, and so it, it's not like he suffered a major loss since. 
recouped it and as we mentioned has like 4.6 billion now right. um but yeah just like it went when he goes golfing he he has um he apparently will tell people that like they can only golf with him if they'll bet thirty thousand dollars right he won't get real grumpy if he loses unless they do thirty thousand per hole yeah yeah he was per hole <laughs> Yeah, he's he's just a, an obsessive compulsive gambler. Um, he's also uh, one of the horse billionaires. It's just worth noting <laughs> he uh, he he bought some thoroughbreds and and not not like the kind of horse billionaire that like Mackenzie Bezos is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but the the kind where he he bought horses for the Tony Soprano reason, where he just wanted to race them. <laughs> uh, so. I, I did want to mention uh, with this guy, uh, Joe Lewis, there's no direct Jeffrey Epstein connection, but uh, this Bear Stearns stuff is always weird to me because something we just talked about on our Hearst episode is um, uh, according to wallstreetonparade.com, uh, Jeffrey Epstein was the chairman of this fucking Bermuda company, Bermuda-based company called um, uh, Liquid Funding LTD. Bear Don't Stearns. Be silly! <laughs> Bear Stearns was, as of 2002, the 40% owner of Liquid Funding LTD. And Liquid Funding LTD was this offshore vehicle, uh, apparently had $6.7 billion U.S. billion in outstanding liabilities as of 2006. Again, Bear Stearns owns 40% of this thing. Jeffrey Epstein is the chairman for some reason. Jeffrey Epstein, of course, worked for Bear Stearns for a while. So, and again, the allegation made by Wall Street on Parade is it's very possible this Jeffrey Epstein co- uh, company got a big chunk of the Federal Reserve bailout that starts in 2016 goes up until they're bought by uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. So it is just weird. Anybody who has links to Bear Stearns is like, you know, less than three degrees of separation from Jeffrey Epstein. Bear Stearns <laughs> is fine. Do not take your money. Out. This is really okay. Just to give for some further context. So like their stock was trading at $172 a share as late as January 2007. And then, like I mean, like Andy said, it, so, it eventually sold for ten dollars a share. It was low as two, but um, they they worked out a fair price at ten, I guess. Je- yeah. Uh, Andy, you're being very unfair to Jim Cramer by playing that that clip because you're not showing uh, moments before when he was on the phone saying, "Come on, Jeffrey, Bear Stearns is a dog." No, no. And Jeffrey no. said, "Come on, come on, Jim, I've got you on tape." <laughs> <laughs> you gotta sell the people bear stairs. has been dead for six months. I like that. I, I like that. Um, in January or like in, yeah, in January two thousand seven, Bear Stearns was had a level of debt to equity, otherwise known as leverage, of mm-hmm. about thirty five to one, meaning that <laughs> if its if its position moved even one percent in against it. For long enough, it would just it would technically be like almost bankrupt at certain points. Yeah, I have no idea what he was thinking when he was just pouring money into there. Like <laughs> it, it's clearly not something like a rational, smart person would do. No, it's a guy that has a lot of money and goes, "Fuck it, I'm gonna bet. It might work, it might not, but I'll make most of it back probably." That's the way he looks at it, I feel. He was probably <laughs> betting on a bailout. Yeah, but Bear Stearns never f- finessed for a bailout. They, uh, 
Like he didn't. I don't think he owned too much. He didn't own any Bear Stearns debt. I don't think. So like, if he had, if he bought up a bunch of corporate debt, I could see like the, you know, the the bailout play. I guess. Yeah, like judging by what happened to all the other banks, if Bear Stearns wanted a bailout, they could have gotten a bailout. But I think uh, Stephen, you were telling me before we recorded, there was a a, a gentleman by the name of Dick Fold, who was the <laughs> CEO. <laughs> Oh, well, he was, um, <laughs> so he was, uh, Lehman. Oh, he was Lehman. Oh, okay. And he, he wanted to save it through the private market. Maybe that was the mindset going on at Bear Stearns. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, they certainly, um, there's some good, um, drama docs about Bear Stearns. I forget the name of one of them, but like they have. They had like all sorts of meetings with private actors and like the the Treasury Secretary Paulson wanted them to quote get like this should be a private like he didn't want to get the government involved with a bailout or something like that. Um he wanted to like avoid Lehman, the Lehman scenario. But yeah. <laughs> so closing out, uh let's talk about why north london fucking hates this guy um we've we've already talked about it a bit um that he owns the premier league football team the tottenham hotspurs um which uh he officially owns them through uh one of his uh investment companies called enoch group and that's just an acronym for english national investment company and day by day it's run by uh, another billionaire by the name of daniel levy Mm -hmm. uh who's a, a friend of lewis and uh, they repeatedly just do wildly unpopular things. Like, as we mentioned um, uh, last year, the the team uh, just out of pure uh, just just out of being cheap, they didn't buy a single new player to bolster their squad. Um, so they had they had that Argentine uh ironically uh coach the name uh Mauricio Pochettino and he was basically left out to dry because um because the board wasn't buying any new uh players and so when they had a disappointing performance uh they just sacked him instead and uh as we mentioned earlier he uses an advanced form of sabermetric salary cutting where he play- pays his argentine players with access to water <laughs> they put him on this uh they they the brits have this adorable term for it they put him on gardening leave where of course they're paying him um to not be coach until he finds a better job and uh, then when the COVID crisis came around, uh, they announced their plan to furlough 40% of their non-playing staff, uh, which is approximately 550 people, and imposed the salary cut of 20%. And there was such massive backlash by the fans. Apparently, the year before, when they didn't buy any new players, um, they got the hashtag Enoch out trending, uh, which was like pretty good class consciousness on the part of the fan base. Um, but they, so they got, they planned to furlough 40% of their 550 person staff, uh, cut the salary by 20%. Uh, and the fans had so much backlash that they, uh, embarrassingly had to walk it back. 
uh, claiming that they would only cut the payout of the board for the team. And then they asked uh, Pochettino to take a pay cut. And clearly, wow. once they did that, he immediately took it to the press. <laughs> um, and finally, to add insult to injury, as we hinted at, uh, they dipped into this government scheme where employers in the UK, because of COVID-19 measures, they can claim 80% of their furloughed staff's monthly wages uh, in their taxes. And so this tax cheat, Joe Lewis, who you know lives on his boat so that he doesn't have to pay taxes, is now asking the British government for money uh, to pay for his staff that he didn't want to pay for anyway. Wow. Yeah. I mean... I'm just surprised that uh, Dan Levy's dad, Eugene Levy of SCTV, is involved with all of this. <laughs> it is just like, I mean, it tells you who really owns the British press. I mean, obviously, the people who own capital. Because mm-hmm. you would think this, like, violently nationalist paper like The Sun or The Daily Mail or whatever would care that this offshore tax cheat is, you know, just completely fucking over the public purse, do- dodging taxes, but also stealing benefits that are clearly meant for domestic British employers. But everybody, every rich person is in London is all playing the same offshore game. They're not going to call each other on it. I did just want to mention the art stuff because we we said he has all these paintings on his boat and uh, something that we've talked about a lot is that art is very liquid. If, you know, you're a fucking international criminal, you can unload a Picasso for for 20 million. So he has this floating uh, art exhibit on his boat that gives him access to money. And I did just want to mention really quick, we know because of the Panama Papers... We know because of the Panama Papers uh, and Mossack Fonseca... The uh, the um, the Panama company that was helping all these people set up offshore companies. We know that he did like this weird thing with this Christie's art auction uh, where he set up a bunch of shells. He bought up some paintings, including the Picasso, some Picassos. Uh, he went in with Christie's and had this major art auction in 1997 called the Gans. Uh, auction, the Gans collection in mm-hmm. 1997. Uh, in the Guardian piece, they described this as a steroid injection to the art market, uh, where you know it kind of set off this uh, crazy um, inflation in art prices that we've seen. But what I just wanted to mention here is that uh, he is a major owner in Christie's. Apparently, uh, between 94 and 98, he was the largest shareholder, the single largest shareholder in Christie's, the art trading house. And what I just wanted to mention about that is in 1996, Christie's sold a painting called Seated Man with a Cane, uh, which is a 1918 painting uh, by the Italian artist Omedo uh, Modigliani. Uh, And that's just it's relevant because this painting was uh, stolen out of Paris by the Nazis in 1940 when they occupied Paris. Hmm. And uh, its original owner, who owned it in 1940, was a Jewish man who had to flee Paris, of course, because the Nazis came. The Nazis took it, and his descendants have been in court ever since trying to get it back. And uh, Christie's had no problem in 1996 selling this thing and pocketing the money. And uh, then Mossack Fonseca also helped the current quote-unquote owners of the piece fight um, legal battles against the the family members descendants trying to get it back Uh, but but I guess I just wanted to mention that this guy in addition to everything else uh, made some money off of Nazi art and has a little floating art warehouse that he uses to uh, 
to keep himself liquid if uh, shit goes south with his Argentine state property. How does he insure any of that if it's just on a ship? <laughs> any of the right. art, I mean. I mean, he's not paying taxes. He so he just he doesn't give a fuck. I think. Well. Like and that's the thing they tried to sell that painting in 2008, but all the bidders were like, "Yeah, this is stolen Nazi art, so <laughs> we're not gonna buy it." <laughs> so it's just in some warehouse in Geneva, waiting for the legal battle to be sorted out. I don't know if all the bidders were like, "I don't like this Nazi art." I'm sure some of them were like, "I mean, I'll consider some Nazi art in my collection." Yeah, some of them just kind of. Other people were saying it, so they join in. Yeah, some of them were probably like, uh, "Well, let's wait until." There's uh, less public auction, um, maybe something <laughs> a little more under the table. Right, right. Yeah, the, uh, the other the other investors who complained about it all leave, and then a few of them are still there, and they're like, "Listen, <laughs> I'm surprised there's not a, a private Nazi art auction that they've set up. Like, it's 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 strange that they're doing this in public when clearly they've got all the back channels they need if they really want to unload some Nazi art. But maybe they're just ex- especially cocky well i believe that joe lewis tried to own a majority stake in christie's but was unsuccessful at one point so i don't know exactly how much of the art market itself is just for corruption and and uh, hoarding money but you know if you own even a significant portion of christie's you must be doing a lot of that right he well according to the guardian he bought like uh, 30 percent and then he sold his stake in 1998 for a tidy profit after helping uh, drive up this money laundering art market uh, price inflation, <laughs> if you if you own if you own the auction house, I mean, whatever whatever price they strike at auction, Christie's gets a percentage of that. Right. So he benefits from generally inflating art prices for like like you know specific time periods from Europe or whatever. Yeah, the house always wins. Hmm. I do just like that there's a warehouse in Switzerland where you can find all the hottest Nazi stolen goods. <laughs> just The shit's too hot to fence, so it's just got to stay in Switzerland for a while. There was a heist movie about that a while ago where some people, I, I guess it was based on a true story, some people uh, did a heist raiding a bunch of uh, personal security boxes in Switzerland and a bunch of the stuff that they made off with was not claimed later. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Because it was Nazi loot. Switzerland gets a reputation for neutrality, but I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and saying that keeping stolen Nazi goods is not a neutral position. <laughs> You're actually taking a side when you do that. Wait a minute. This is stolen Nazi art. So loud. So loud. So loud. So loud. All right, we're wrapping this puppy up. And with that... This has been Grubstakers. I'm Yogi Poyol. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Steve Jeffers. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Stay safe. Bye. Joe Lewis was perhaps the skilled boxer to ever rule the heavyweight division. He reigned as the champion for an astounding 12 years, with 52 wins by KO. Many of them came by way of his flawless cross. Lewis's style of fighting was minimalistic, and he was incredibly patient. He would make incremental adjustments of mere inches to get his preferred distance, and wait until the most opportune time. If Lewis wasn't sure he could land a knockout with his cross at that exact moment, he simply didn't throw it. It's ironic that one of the most technically sound and mechanically proficient boxers in history used techniques that would today be considered overly risky or even sloppy, but Lewis used these power building methods with purpose and forethought. As so many modern day boxers have forgotten, without risk, 
there's no glory. 